Asked and Answered, Episode 5, brought to you by Revision Legal, an intellectual property law and internet law firm. I'm Eric Mastarevich, and I'm here with my partner, John DiGiacomo. Hello, and happy Friday. And today I'm excited to talk about two of my favorite things, privacy and tool. (laughs) Yeah, you. uh, I, I love seeing the Facebook updates of drafting uh, to tool in the background. It must get you pumped up to write some, <laughs> some briefs. Yeah, there's nothing more 90s than uh, being... There's nothing more adult than uh, drafting to tool, drafting a <laughs> privacy policy especially. <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah, well, let's... Um, I agree. I think those two are two good topics. And, and the first one, uh, the privacy policy, the issue kind of came up because we ran across uh, this cool um, tool by the University of Texas to talk about privacy policies and help consumers digest them easier. But why don't we talk a little bit about just privacy in general? It's a hot topic right now. The NSA, there was just a federal ruling about the NSA's tactics being uh, uh, invalid and outside the scope of their authority. And this, this issue of privacy is just everywhere in our face right now. It really is, and it's kind of a really fundamental issue that goes back to the Bill of Rights. In the United States, we don't have a, a statement about privacy that is explicit in the Bill of Rights. We have these amendments uh, to the U.S. Constitution that create what are called a penumbra of privacy rights, and they typically arise out of um, Roe v. Wade and these other cases on contraceptives that created this little shadow of privacy rights that isn't really that explicit. So because there is no stated uh, privacy amendment to the U.S. Constitution and because there really isn't a federal statute addressing a lot of these things, we just kind of go by common law. That's in complete contrast to the EU. EU has this data protection directive, and now Canada has a similar piece of legislation that says that the EU and Canada now are opt-in societies. So in order to collect personal or personally identifiable information from a EU resident or now a Canadian resident, you have to take you have to get explicit consent. You have to do something more than just display a privacy policy on a website. And that's way different than the US. Yeah, and that opt-in, opt-out choice it may seem like a small difference, but it is. A, it can cause major, major changes in society, and you know everything from opting in to say like organ donation is an opt-in thing. And uh, you know, there's. I, I read a book about this and how much difference can happen in a society from opt-in, opt-out, and the way that we treat privacy. Um, maybe it's going to change at some point. I think people are certainly getting tired of. Uh, being spied on almost. It's not really spied on because you're consenting to it by using these websites or or anything, but it feels wrong at some level. Yeah, it really does. And it's kind of interesting that in light of the growing public concern about both surveillance in the private sector and in the public sector, um, courts are starting to treat privacy a little bit differently. Uh, I think as of yesterday, a court, uh, I believe it was out west, no, excuse me, it was the Second Circuit. The Second Circuit said that the uh, mass surveillance of U.S. citizens' phone records is unconstitutional. So in the past, we would have said, eh, no, it's okay because of terrorism. (laughs) That's really the default position. Now now courts are saying, 
I don't know about that. Yeah. I, uh, I, I'll i put this in the show notes if I can find it. I remember watching a video one time. It was, I think, a Swedish video, and it was about privacy and privacy policies, and it had people coming into a bakery, and they would buy, you know, whatever, a bagel muffin, and then the cashier would say, uh, where do you live? You know, and what's your address? <laughs> and start asking them all these really personal questions, and the consumer was just like, I'm not answering that. And then they would leave, and then the person would just follow them out the store and follow and keep following them down the street because that's what happens online. And it's like shocking when you actually see it in real life, if you want to call it that. It feels completely wrong, and it, it's completely normal online. It is. And unfortunately, no one has really taken on the task of getting a federal data privacy law. I think that's probably the next step. And it's going to probably take a very serious data breach, even more serious than the ones that we're seeing now, which are incredibly serious because it's millions of people um, to, to get there. But in the meantime, we kind of have to make sure that we take care of uh, our users by making them aware of what their rights are when they interact with our websites. And that's kind of what we do as attorneys. We draft these website agreements, a terms of use agreement and a privacy policy to ensure that the user understands what the relationship is between the parties. Right. And those are, those are complex agreements. They can be long. They can be confusing. We certainly try to make them as easy and digestible as possible, but, um, you know, for that's not always the case, and that's why I thought this idea from the University of Texas was really interesting. This they have a Chrome uh, extension called Privacy Check. It's available now. Um, you can download it, and what it does is you go to a website, you find their privacy policy, you hit the uh, the Privacy Check extension, and it immediately reviews the. Uh, the privacy policy and it has these eight icons or eight or ten icons that pop up and kind of tell you what is this website currently doing and it's certainly a fast quick and easy way of digesting a privacy policy which is a good start you know i've played around with it a little bit and it seems to work i haven't really checked it for accuracy Um, and i think these privacy policies can be pretty complex sometimes but it's a, I think it's a, it's a really good start. I'm almost surprised this is one of the first times I've heard of something like this. Yeah, it almost seems like you would have some kind of independent agency that helped uh, consumers understand what information is being collected, and that agency would then standardize that information across websites. That would be kind of a cool tool. This seems more of a syntax-based tool. So the accuracy is probably not going to be the greatest, but it's a really good start, and... You know, kudos to Texas for taking this on. Yeah, kind of, and that, your idea of standardizing it kind of reminds me of, I think, the recent changes in what happens with credit card bills. I think they made those, I think there was legislation passed that attempted to standardize those and make those more e- easily digestible. It seems like maybe that's the kind of model to, to help websites explain how they're collecting uh, or what they're collecting and what they do with the information they collect from you. Yeah, and I think some states have tried to do that. California is the most notable example, and we'll talk about that later. But uh, if it's not at the federal level, 
all of a sudden it becomes very burdensome to comply with. So it really does have to be at the federal level. So everybody's on the same page. Every consumer knows exactly what they're getting. But yeah, like I said, this is a great start. Yeah, it's cool. Uh, check it out. Uh, it's called Privacy Check on the Google Chrome extension. Uh, it's an interesting, interesting little tool. But why don't we talk about um, this world of website agreements that we're often tasked with with drafting and um, we know these things are important, and we spend considerable amount of time getting these right for our clients, but I'm not sure the rest of the world understands why these things are important. No, I don't think they do, and I think a lot of times they skimp on them or they decide to copy and paste them from somebody else's site, and that's really kind of not a great idea. So in terms of use agreement, let's start there. Terms of use agreement is the primary contract between the website and the end user. Or in some cases, depending on the business model, it will be a contract between the website and its advertisers or any other third party. So the terms of use or terms of service agreement covers the, uh, it, it kind of discloses the purpose of the website it uh, licenses the use of that website to the end user for specifically enumerated purposes and nothing more than those purposes. And that it also uh, takes a license from the end user for certain purposes. So, for example, if it's a social media website, it will take a non-exclusive license so that the website operator has accurate rights to uh, display the content that the user is submitting to the website. Right, yeah, user-generated content. I mean, right. yep. you know, who, under traditional copyright law, I'm the author of this this comment or this, this idea or this uh, image or anything that you're posting to a website. The website operator needs to have the permission to display that. And that's all done in the terms of use agreements. Um, you know, and it, this is one time where, it's it's really the website operator's chance to set the rules. This is your website. This is your business. It's time for you to set your rules of how people are going to use this website. And people should take advantage of that and set rules that they want and that protect their interests. Um, you know, it's one of the few times you really get to 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 lay out this is this is the rules of the business. You don't really get that option too many times in life, and I think people should take care of that and take advantage of it. They definitely should, and one thing that the consumer should know is that these things are enforceable. It's it's not like the old days when they weren't enforceable, and they're enforceable under two theories. One is the browse wrap theory, which is that once you browse the website and interact with it, you assent to the terms. The other is kind of the standard I agree click wrap theory, which is that once you click an I agree button to accept those terms, you assent to them. So understanding those terms is very important. For the website owner, it's especially important because if you don't have a custom drafted terms of use agreement for your specific purposes, you can run into a bunch of problems. Personally, in our practice, I've seen a website owner of an e-commerce store not adopt a terms of use agreement. Uh, that was tailored towards his business model, and he was sued in California for copyright infringement, even though he has no relationship to California. And lo and behold, the basis for jurisdiction was that he had forgotten to change the choice of law clause that said that jurisdiction was proper in California. Mm -hmm. So he had represented in his terms of use agreement that this was a proper place for him to be hauled into court, 
and he had never even been to the state. Yeah. So it's important to understand what, you know, as a business owner and as a consumer, what you're getting into when you're in, interacting with one of these websites. Yeah, yeah, they're important, they're enforceable, they're the chance to protect your business, and like you said, they're not something that should be copied and pasted. It's, you know, there's no doubt that you can look at other sites and and understand what they did, get an idea of it, but you want to craft these to how you operate. Uh, You don't want to have provisions in there that don't apply to you. you. You want to have these provisions tailored to what you do and how you respond to it and and not just shove this off copy and paste it and get on with your life it's it's, you're really missing out and really opening yourself up to like you said that example a real pain in the ass if you don't take care of these yeah huge pain in the ass one of the biggest pains in the asses that i've ever seen was that uh large large company that we represent uh has a tool on its website that that provides some specific data so lo and behold it finds that its competitor is taking excuse me has written a script to scrape the data associated with that tool and replicate that tool on its own website well our client you know because it didn't listen to our advice uh didn't adopt a terms of use agreement had it adopted one we could have sued for breach of contract because the terms of use agreement would have said look, you cannot come to this website and scrape data. Uh, by using this website, you agreed to these terms, et cetera, and therefore that would be a breach of contract. And they didn't do it. And so they were left without a, a proper cause of action. There are some real serious consequences to not doing this correctly. Yeah, yeah. And, and one area that often comes up um, you know, in the online space is the issue of copyright infringement. And, you know, this doesn't apply to every website. And that's, you know, that's the point here is if you are a social media site, you're going to have specific concerns. If you're an e-commerce store, you're going to have specific concerns. If you're basically just an informational website about your business and there's not a lot of interaction, you're probably going to have less concerns. You know, if you're a crowdfunding portal, you're going to have even more concerns. Um, But anytime there is users interacting with, your site and posting content, there becomes an issue with copyright and copyright infringement. And there's a federal law called the Digital Millennium Copyright Act that applies in these settings. And it's a very useful tool for copyright owners. It provides a notice and takedown procedure by which copyright owners can have infringing images, songs, movies, words, websites uh, removed quickly. And because the Internet is what it is and it's so easy to copy and reproduce content, this has been a very valuable tool for copyright owners. But for website owners, there's different level of concerns and different actions that they should take to take advantage of what the DMCA offers. Um, And that's typically by registering or designating an agent, right? Right. And if a lot of people think, well, I'll just respond to DMCA notices and it's cool. Nothing's going to happen as long as I take the content down. Well, that's not actually the case. If you, for example, are a service provider and you receive a DMCA notice and you do not have a registered agent with the U.S. Copyright Office, 
you don't qualify for the safe harbor. Right. You can be sued directly for direct liability or secondary liability for the republication of that copyrighted content. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of little pitfalls within uh, this this process of adopting a terms of use agreement, ensuring that you comply with the you know the, the copyright regulations, et cetera, that really need to be navigated uh, successfully in order for you to protect yourself and to protect your business. Yeah, and I mean, we're talking about designating a copyright agent. You know, it's a one-page form. It's a relatively small fee. And what do you get for that? You get immunity from copyright infringement lawsuit. I mean, it's it's a huge, huge benefit. And it's something that if you're copying and pasting, you're not going to understand the importance of those. If you're not dealing with an attorney who understands what they're doing, you're, you're, you're going to be left out of this protection. Yeah. And it's really not smart to be left out of the protection. So let's talk a little bit about privacy policies now. Privacy policies, well, you tell me, what do you think um, privacy policies are for? Well, they are intended, in my opinion, they're the chance for the business and the website to explain to the user what information is being collected about them and what you're doing with that information. Um, You know, I think some, again, this is a spot where I think website owners, operators, this is the last thing they're really concerned about. But it is important to get this stuff right. And it is important because the data that you're collecting can be valuable. And what you do with that data is going to be governed by this privacy policy. And if you don't get it right, and if you don't do it correctly, if you don't leave yourself wiggle room to do what is you want to do with that data, you're, you're hindering yourself. I know an example of this came up, I think recently in the radio shack bankruptcy. Yeah. I was just going to say that. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, They, they have all of this customer data, but then you go back and look at their privacy policy and they said, they'll never sell it. Well, it's an asset and now they're in bankruptcy and it's being sold. And I think they were, I don't know exactly how that worked out. I think they were able to somehow get around that. Yeah, I'm not, I can't really remember either, but let's assume that they didn't. Let's assume that the privacy policy, as it was enacted then, said that they couldn't sell that information. Well, now you're left without one of the most valuable assets that you have. And had you just had some proper drafting at the outset, you would have been able to sell that asset. Yeah, it's really shocking that they did not. I mean, it's a pretty standard provision to include in a privacy policy that, you know, you're not going to sell it. But if the entire business is sold, then that's part of the business and that will be sold. Yeah, it's it's really sticky, too, because even if you uh, let's say you got you had a merger or an acquisition, if that provisions not in the privacy policy, the successor company cannot acquire that information. Right. Effectively, (laughs) you can't do anything. You're you're just stuck there without violating that privacy policy and potentially subjecting yourself to a class action lawsuit. Yeah. And I think, I think companies, because of the private, the role privacy is playing in everyone's lives right now. And because everyone is really concerned with it, we're aware of the NSA and we're aware of what's happening. Um, I think a lot of companies look at these privacy policies and they go, I don't want to, I don't want to take their data or I don't want to sell it. I'm not going to share it. I don't want to do any of this. And 
they think it will scare consumers off to even talk about it. And I think that's probably a mistake because you can draft a privacy policy to to reserve the ability to sell it if there is this kind of merger, acquisition, bankruptcy, sale of the business. You want to preserve the ability to do that. It doesn't necessarily mean you're just mining data and selling it to third parties. And so when people, you got to weigh that, that balance of informing the consumer and protecting yourself about what you can do with the data that you get from your, from your consumers. Absolutely. Like everything in life, while well, most things in life, the answer is somewhere in the middle. It's not this, well, we're not going to collect any information and it's not, well, we're not going to, we're going to collect all information. We're going to sell it to whoever wants it. It's more about transparency. If, if the company is transparent with its customers and it specifically identifies uh, in a transparent way the information that it's collecting and using, then consumers are going to feel okay about interacting with that company. That's all there is to it. They, consumers aren't as stupid as we think they are. Yeah, and we, I think we know that we're, our data is being collected. Yeah. You know, everyone knows that now. Exactly what everyone's doing with that, um, we don't always know. Um, and that's where it gets a, a little hairy. But I think if you're the business and, and you're you're drafting this or you're wondering what should be in your privacy policy, you've got to think a long way down the road. You're, you're not just thinking about scaring off customers now. You, this, is, this is about your business. This is a part of your asset. And this interaction means you should be transparent and, and trust the consumer and they'll make the decision to, you know, to trust you if you're honest with them. Absolutely. I just got a notification uh, in my email from my thermostat that sent me my April home report telling me my energy usage. Mm -hmm. Why do I need them to collect this information? <laughs> As a privacy lawyer, I should probably be opting out of this one. Yeah. I just thought that was timely and relevant. Yeah, it is. <laughs> I, you know, I, 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 so I cook a lot at home and uh, you, I'm, half the time I, I'm cooking from a recipe on you know foodnetwork.com or something, and and it's I'm doing it on my phone while I'm trying to cook and watch baby and all this stuff, and it's a real pain because every time I go there, they ask me if they can track my location, and I always just wonder what the hell does Food Network need to you know? No, you can't have my information of where I am. Just give me the recipe, <laughs> you know. Um, so it is, you know, to give the consumers the ability to opt out like that is important. But uh, how a company manages all of these interesting questions of interacting with consumers and setting themselves up to be best protected, it's a really interesting issue and one that you need to talk to an attorney that is experienced in this area. Yeah, and it's really interesting now because we live in this federalist system. There is no federal law on point. But yet there's a bunch of state laws that need to be navigated. The most interesting of all of them right now is California. California is just a ridiculously large state. It's the home of Silicon Valley. And they have adopted this California, what's called Shine the Light Law, that is an online privacy protection act that covers uh, the collection and disclosure of the collection of personal and personally identifiable information. Yeah, California. It's always California. Um, they're all, they usually are on the, the cutting edge of these kinds of laws. And yeah, they have these California privacy rights and the California Online Privacy Protection Act. And 
These are specific state law rules about privacy policies. Um, the the privacy rights um, provision allows consumers to reach out to a website and have the summary of the information collected and dispersed by a website given to them. Uh, they can do that once a year, and that you know this is a provision that we include in in our privacy policies and. It takes people by surprise usually when they read this and they say, what is this? Why am I subject to this? And most time people aren't going to use it, but it is the law in California and it is, you should comply with it. Uh, it's usually not too difficult to comply with. And a lot of companies don't yet, won't even be, they won't even be triggered by it depending on what you're doing with the data. But it is law in California and it, I think it's useful. I'm not, I'd like to see some stats on who actually invokes this. Yeah, that would be really interesting to know. I, I suspect that it's very few people. Yeah, yeah. But California also lays out, you know, how we were talking about this standardized form of privacy policies and how that would help consumers. California's attempted to do that to some extent with their California Online Privacy Protection Act, which requires certain things that the privacy policy needs to disclose, um, including... You know, the categories of information collected, how does someone opt in or opt out, um, the effective date, these do not track signals and how those are handled. It's certainly a good start, I guess, um, to provide some form of guidelines to drafting these. The real issue is if anyone reads a privacy policy, it's going to take it 25 minutes to figure out this information. I mean, it's just not easily digestible. Yeah, absolutely. But we can, I mean, a lot of our clients come to us and say, look, I want a privacy policy that's easy to read. Yeah. And, you know, you and I both love to write. That's what we do for a living. So um, it's always fun to be able to try to kind of uh, write something that's coherent and yet at the same time legally effective. And a good attorney should be able to do that. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, that's just the, the difference of, of interest at hand. You know, from the consumer standpoint, you want to say, let's make these things easier to digest. From an owner standpoint, you're saying, let's protect me. And uh, at the same time, I think, mo- like you said, a lot of, a lot of people say, let's, let's talk like human beings as much as possible in this privacy <laughs> policy. And that's, that is refreshing. It is nice to do that. I like to talk like a robot, so I, I don't know what you're talking about. Well, let's let's answer today's. Usually during this time, we answer a question from a user, and today we're going to pretend like Maynard James Keenan from Tool has sent us a question. So let's kind of discuss the new Tool album, which uh, is it's been eight years since the last Tool album, um, which was called Ten Thousand Days. I'm a huge Tool fan. I have seen them live probably eight or nine times, um, and in fact, last year. Maynard James Keenan walked through the alley behind my office, and I was the only one in town that recognized who he was, and I got a really creepy picture of him <laughs> from my window, which subsequently I posted on Facebook and Twitter. So go ahead and check that out. That's hilarious. But, so Tool has not had an album in eight years, and, and why have they not had an album? Well, it's because they've been involved in this copyright-related lawsuit. So yeah. the question... Yeah, yeah it, it was... John, you're more familiar with this, but I know it was about a uh, some artwork, right? Is that how it started? 
Yeah, so in 2007, Adam Jones, who is this, who's the guitarist for Tool, incredibly talented guy, but also an artist, um, and typically does the art for their music videos and a lot of their album cover art, had hired a friend to do some work, uh, creative work for the album. And at this time in 2007, this friend said, hey, you didn't pay me for this. I own copyright rights to this content and therefore I'm going to sue you. Well, Tool, like a lot of other businesses, had a general commercial liability policy. And once it got sued, its insurance carrier, Clarendon National Insurance Company, paid about $450,000 to settle the case. Well, once the case was settled, Clarendon turned around and sued Tool for a breach of contract. And the reason they did that is because they claimed that Tool was liable to indemnify the insurance company for the amount paid to settle the case uh, because the exclusions that were contained within the intellectual property, excuse me, not intellectual property, but a commercial general liability policy uh, excluded this type of claim, the payment for this type of claim. So basically, Tool was on the hook. Yeah, and this is this comes down to um, it seems like there was an easy fix in this situation if they there was some planning done ahead of time. Yeah, I mean this is a huge deal. It's and this is what we always tell clients, and that's why I said the question should have come from Andrew James Keenan. So the question is, what do I do when I work with a contractor, and what's the answer to that question? Have a work for hire provision in the contract. Yeah, I mean it's it's so basic, and it, you know clients never really understand that. It's, you have to have a work made for hire contract in the agreement with your contractor, or if you didn't have one at the outset, you need to have an assignment after the fact because a work made for hire provision is not enough if the work was created previously or excuse me prior to the execution of the contract. Yep, and just as, as background, this is this is a, a function of copyright law. When the author creates a work that's fixed in a tangible medium, they are the owner of that copyright right. You know, a common example of this is um, wedding photographers. You know, you hire this photographer, they charge you uh, triple the normal cost because it's a wedding. And they take all these pictures, and then they edit them all. They make them available in an online gallery that's marked with a watermark. If you want any of these pictures, you got to buy them from, from the photographer. Why do I have to do that? I already paid you an enormous amount of money to come take the photos. Well, it's because they're the owner of the photo. You are not. Unless you had a work-for-hire provision in the agreement between you and the photographer. And that way all of the copyright rights would vest in you as the uh, as the owner instead of the photographer. So it's, it's an enormously important provision that's, I would say, wildly overlooked by most people. Yeah, I would agree. And I think there's one other aspect of this case that's really instructive, and that is that you need to read your insurance policy. If you are an online business and you have just adopted a general commercial liability policy, you probably should find out what is and is not included in that policy. Typically, those policies will cover what's called advertising injury, which is an injury related to defamation or uh, a claim for the uh, right of publicity, invasion of the right of publicity. But it doesn't usually cover intellectual property infringement. Intellectual property infringement uh, policies are very expensive, 
but in a lot of cases, they're really important. So you should work with both your insurance agent and your attorney to kind of understand how can I best insure against the risk that's associated with my business. Um, it sounds like Claritin didn't have a very well-drafted contract here. Yeah, certainly. To be in seven, eight years of litigation, um, yeah, someone someone failed at their <laughs> job here because there's no way this should be that difficult of an issue. Yeah, so, you know, thankfully, well, at least from my perspective, thankfully in January of this year, Tool prevailed at trial, which means that there's a new Tool album coming. And for you that clicked on this because we're talking about Tool, I'm sorry, I don't have any information. Wish I did. <laughs> so you don't know when it's coming out? No, I have no clue. <laughs> and, and in fact, when I, when I, I've actually met Maynard James Keenan, and when I did, I went out of my way not to ask him that question because yeah. I read up before interacting with him that he might slap the shit out of me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he's tired of answering that question. So that's all we got this week. Do you have anything else? No, I think that was a, I think that was a great show. I think, you know, privacy policies and terms of use agreement, not usually the most exciting thing in the world, but they are really important. And I think people, I hope people learned um, why they're important today. Yeah, I hope so too. And again, this isn't legal advice. You should always contact an attorney about this stuff. Um, and thanks for listening. Yes, yeah. go check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Drop us a line if you have any questions that you'd like us to discuss, and we will see you next week.